You've heard that music is a universal language, but what's with all the recordings coming out of tiny Iceland of all places? You don't even necessarily need to understand the language to be able to feel the emotional quality or what's being conveyed in the music. In just a bit, a Seattle radio host tells us why he flies to Reykjavik every November to hear what hundreds of musicians from around the world are saying in their music. A theater director from Athens tells us how the classics of Greek theater have never lost their relevance. The characters start becoming more easy for us to identify with, to see ourselves in them. And hear how Shakespeare rings true to the people of East Africa. What few people realize is that very early on in his history, Shakespeare became detached from Britain from being simply a British possession. You've got a front row seat as we explore the universal appeal of Shakespeare, Greek theater, and global music. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The land of fire and ice has become one of the hottest destinations for travelers. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear about the lively music scene in Iceland, where hundreds of musicians and songwriters are finding audiences from around the world. Kevin Cole from Seattle's KEXP Radio tells us why he takes a crew to Reykjavik every November to broadcast performances from a big contemporary music festival there. And a literature instructor from Cambridge joins us in just a bit to explain how the works of William Shakespeare really do have universal appeal. Edmund Wilson Lee grew up in Kenya. He shares what he's discovered about the role of Shakespeare in East Africa. It's not just a symbol of British colonizers anymore, but delights local audiences and even has a hand in forging national identities. Let's start the hour with a look at how the performing arts were used to create a civil society in the time of the ancient Greeks. Philippos Kanakaris directs the theater troupe in Athens and also leads tours around his Greek homeland. He joins us now to help us better understand the role of theater in ancient Greece and some of its essential sites that you can visit today. Philippos, welcome. Thank you. Tell us about your work as a theater director in Athens. I have a small theater company in Athens, and uh, we mainly deal with classical plays. We're revisiting ancient Greek tragedy, mainly, and we try to decipher the hidden messages of this place. Why did this place survive within the centuries? What is it that makes them important to modern life? We're not interested in presenting something which is like an exhibit in a museum, uh-huh. but we're trying to discover all the things that have a global appeal throughout the centuries for people. So why is Greek theater, ancient Greek theater, important to you, and, and why should I care? It is very important because back in the days, I mean in the classical period, 6th, 5th, and 4th century BC, where we have the flourishing of the ancient Greek theater, this is not something special. This is not something that you dress up in order to go and to see someone deciphering words or singing or dancing. It was something that was mandatory for everyone, regardless of their income, regardless of their education. In fact... Rich sponsored had to pay for the fee so that the simple, the poor people, the uneducated people can go and see plays. It occurred to me, I was at an ancient Greek theater recently, and it occurred to me, this is like, almost like church 500 years before Christ. This is where morals were taught. This is where lessons were taught the younger generation. How are you going to be a good Greek citizen, a good human being. Absolutely. And that's why they believed that it was an integral part of 
the society theatre, and it was mandatory for everyone. 2,500 years ago. Now, Absolutely. today, are some of these ancient plays still being enjoyed by Greeks? By Greeks, and not only Greeks. They're being performed in other parts of the world. Um, having lived for six years in London, always the National Theatre of the UK presents ancient Greek tragedies. They have it on their repertoire. So what's an example of a, of a lesson that the Greeks would all learn and be inspired by 500 years before Christ that today still resonates with people who can go and enjoy a, a Greek play? That's an excellent question. I will give you an example from a play I directed quite recently. That was Medea by Euripides. Uh, very quickly, she is the wife of Jason from a- Jason and the Argonauts. Uh-huh. They go, they get the Golden Fleece. They re- instead of going back to the place they need to go, they end up going to Corinth. And that's where Jason, despite all her sacrifices and the assistance she gave him because she was a kind of a witch, she assisted him to get everything he wanted. They go to Corinth and he abandons her to marry the wife of the local king. She takes her revenge by killing their children and his future wife. Why was this play written at this time? I will tell you, we are on the verge of the Peloponnesian War. Athens is ready to go to war with Sparta. And what Euripides is trying to say with this play is, Be careful, because in Athens, we have three kinds of people that we don't recognize as real citizens. The women, the foreigners, and the slaves. When the time comes and we will need their help, because there's a war coming, they will take their revenge on us. Oh, that was wise to be able to call people's attention to that. Exactly. Because Medea is a woman. She comes from an area which is modern-day Georgia in Russia, in former uh, Soviet Republic, and uh, she's about to become a slave because she's being kicked out of her country. So now, today, you can look back, and as a theater director and an enthusiast for Greek theater, you can look back and actually respect these playwrights as, uh, as we look at Shakespeare, smart, full of wisdom, and appropriate to this day. Absolutely. And you can see a difference in the way they write. Aeschylus, who is the oldest, he started writing first. So he writes archetypes. He describes, he, he creates characters that have in them elements of kings, of, of important men, important women. Then we have Sophocles, who finds kind of a balance between the human and the divine. And then we go to Euripides, and Euripides is the person that started what we perceive today as psychological theater. So what is psychological theater? What do we mean by that? We're talking about a theater which is based on real characters, real people, people that have the same dreams that we have, the same fears, the same agonies, the same problems in their lives. The characters start becoming more easy for us as spectators to identify with, to see ourselves in them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Philippos Kanakadis, and he's a, a Greek theater director and a tour guide who joins us in our Travel with Rick Steves studios. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Jory's calling from Raleigh in North Carolina. Jory, thanks for your call. Thank you. So I have a master's degree in theater history, and of course I studied many of the ancient Greek comedies and tragedies as part of my work And over the course of my studies, I built up a bucket list of important historical theaters to see. I've already seen, of course, Shakespeare's Globe, and I have seen the Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza. So, of course, the theater Dionysus is on my list of theaters to see, the theater in Athens where they had the annual play competitions every year. 
So I wanted to know how easy is it to visit, and do they still do performances there? So the Theater of Dionysus, that's the uh, the theater that's just on the side of the mountain of the Acropolis, right? And we all walk by it when we go up to the Parthenon, and you look at this, and it's normally in the middle of the day, it's just sun-baked, and it looks quite uninhabitable. But are there still plays there, and how easy it is to see a play? No, unfortunately, we don't have any theater being presented inside the Theater of Dionysus. But if you want, you can visit it. Mm -hmm. There is an entrance fee, so -hmm. you can go there and see a very well-preserved stage and the first row of seats, because there's still a high number of seats that are still buried underground. But what you can see that you don't find in most other ancient Greek theaters is the thrones that they were building for the very important citizens of Athens. The VIPs. Yes. Ancient VIPs, AVIPs. Exactly. All right. Now, Philippos, if you were Jory's uh, tour guide and you were walking her through this theater, what could we appreciate about Greek theater by looking at the remains of the theater of Dionysus right there in the middle of Athens? What would you tell her about it? We can appreciate the fact that these shows are not presented with lights. They're not presented with a musical score that you press play and you hear it. These are theaters that are exposed, open air. The performances are taking place during daytime with the light of the sun, Mm. and they may be, uh, at certain parts, be late in the evening. The fact that in these empty, exposed venues, without any embellishments, you connect with a text that has really important things to say to you. It's completely against the idea of creating an environment which is lit with a perfect light. You see why this place still remains in time. So it's more vivid and real because it's more um, candid and honest? Absolutely candid, honest, and you see that it's all about what has been written and how clear and clean it is to be given to the audience and communicated with the audience. How many people would be sitting in the ancient theater of Dionysus when it was full, and did it have some backdrop to help the acoustics? How did they manage the acoustics for such a crowd? Well, the actual backdrop of the ancient theater of Dionysus is the rock of the Acropolis, because it's, it's built on the slope. So this was very uh, convenient. So this How was, many people could it accommodate? The maximum capacity, they believe, though they haven't unearthed all the seating, it mm-hmm. would be between ten and 12,000 uh, spectators. So you just turn the volume up on your microphone, or how can you hear somebody uh, with 10,000? The, acoustics, 10, the uh, acoustics. There was a, there was a lot of thought being placed. And I, I, actually, I would recommend to Jory, after she visited this theater, I would take my car and drive her all the way to the ancient theater of Epidavros, because this is a theater situated to the southeast of Athens. Epidavros, and it's a couple hours drive away, but it's where you really hear the acoustics. You hear the acoustics and the show's been presented still. They start being presented from mid-June all the way to late August, every Friday and Saturday. The biggest theater companies in the country present their work over there. And you have the chance to go and see ancient Greek tragedy, ancient comedy. And I've been there where you can have a tour guide just talking at a regular voice in the center of the stage, and the acoustics are... Very smart. Yeah, you can go all the way to the top, and this is a theater that has a capacity of 12,000 people, and you go all the way to the top, and you can hear the slightest sound, the slightest whisper. Wow. It doesn't matter if it's in a different language. You will be blown away by the magic of the acoustics. Mm. And then another theater that's quite astonishing to go to is the theater of Dodoni. Dodoni is situated about three and a half hours drive north of Athens. Dodoni. Yes, it's, oh, a, right. it's within a, an archaeological park. It's mm-hmm. a stunning ancient theater. They still do shows over there. Nice. And then if I wanted to be more adventurous, I would go to the Greek island of Lemnos. 
And over there, you can see a theater that was built in the classical times, 5th century BC, and it's been four years that it reopened. Amazing. It's um, amazing that these are still being used. And in fact, all around the Mediterranean, you can go to the great theater in Epidavros. Uh, you can go to the theater in uh, Ephesus. Absolutely. Uh, and there are Roman theaters and Greek theaters, even in, in southern Italy. Yori, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Bye. Bye now. Filippos Kanakaris is the director of the Syndromos Theater Company in Athens. He's our guide to the world of ancient Greek theater right now on Travel with Rick Steves. This week's show notes include a link to his troupe's website with a short video trailer from their production of Medea. You'll find it at ricksteves.com radio. It's fascinating to me, Philippos, to let our studies of culture and travel take us back and to think that theater was a way for people to teach their children to, to have a good morality. Theater was a way to criticize your political leaders, if necessary, without being uh, thrown in prison for it to make a commentary on the day. I understand there's only like 40 ancient plays surviving from four great playwrights from five or six centuries before Christ. And 2,500 years later, we can still be inspired by that value of ancient Greek theater. Philippos, Kanakaras, Ephedestro. Up next, we explore Shakespeare in East Africa, and a little later in the hour, the contemporary music scene in Iceland. The arts are lively today on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. What do you take with you to read when you vacation far away from home? British explorers and even Teddy Roosevelt carried books of Shakespeare with them when they ventured into Africa in the 19th century. And Shakespeare's presence is still very much alive there today. His plays have been translated into Swahili and South Sudanese Arabic and have become a point of cultural pride for many in East Africa. Edward Wilson Lee grew up in Kenya, and he now teaches Shakespeare at Cambridge. He explores the universal appeal of Shakespeare in his book, Shakespeare in Swahili Land. Edward, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Now, this is so fascinating to think of Shakespeare breaking out of Western culture, uh, especially into East Africa. Can you, first of all, tell us about your passion for Shakespeare and your work at Cambridge? I have been obsessed with Shakespeare since a, you know, a fairly young age. I spent my childhood in Kenya and wasn't one of these children who had a nose in the book the entire time. I spent my childhood uh, off pretending to be heroes rather than reading about them. Uh, but certainly, um, since my teen years, I've been a devotee of Shakespeare, and, and I went on to read that at university and, and then teach it at Cambridge. But it wasn't until I, I happened upon this project that I managed to connect those two very disparate parts of my life. Now, the subtitle of your book, uh, Shakespeare in Swahili Land, is In Search of a Global Poet. It's kind of like elevating Shakespeare to be more than just a, a hero of, of Western literature, but global. How could he be global without being merely cultural imperialism? Yeah, well, I think uh, part of the story is certainly about cultural imperialism. Um, it's about uh, British readers taking Shakespeare to East Africa as a kind of amulet to protect them against the dark continent. But what few people realize is that very early on in his history, Shakespeare became detached from Britain from being simply a British possession um, and was translated into a wide number of uh, of languages. So, for instance, one of the great discoveries in this book was to find that 
Indians who had taken Shakespeare from British culture back in India, but had been brought over to build the railways in East Africa in the early 20th century, had this extraordinary culture of performance of Shakespeare in Mombasa in the early 20th century. Uh, at one point, Shakespeare was being performed uh, more in Mombasa than in London's West End. And these were, you know, gloriously irreverent productions, much like Shakespeare's own day. You know, Shakespeare was a was no elitist. Shakespeare was a man of the theatre, do what's necessary to get bums on seats to entertain uh, the audience. And these were very much Shakespeare plays, but taken and remade um, hmm. to speak to the people who were performing them in Mombasa in the early 20th century. So I think, you know, as long as things don't become petrified as long as we you know we don't put things up on a pedestal and insist that they don't change in order to understand them in new ways then certainly shakespeare can and has come mm. alive in in very very different places than than where he originally wrote the plays no that's an amazing image immigrant laborers from india working on a railway in kenya adapting shakespeare plays to entertain themselves and and make life jolly it's another example of how Shakespeare sort of uh, appeals to people at several levels. Were these plays, when they're used by, for instance, immigrant laborers from India in East Africa, are they adapted to fit the culture? Are they amped up to be more entertaining uh, on their level? Or are they just straight translations of Shakespeare like we would know it? Um, no, I mean, they, they are adapted. Uh, again, there's a wonderful Twelfth Night where instead of being shipwrecked off the coast of Bohemia, as happens in Shakespeare's play, the opening scene sees a train wreck which sweeps the uh, the main uh. characters down a river into a Mughal kingdom. And obviously that's going to speak to people who are themselves working on a very dangerous set of uh, of, of railway construction projects. You know, there's Hamlet set on Mughal battlements, uh, Juliet in a wonderful Romeo and Juliet adaptation. Uh, and again, spoiler alert here for anyone who's never seen <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Uh, instead of stabbing herself at the end of the play, she uses a poisonous snake in order to kill herself, which kind of turns her into, because that's how, again, spoiler alert, sorry, uh, that's how Cleopatra dies at the end of Antony and Cleopatra. So it's this kind of wonderfully fertile reimagining of the plays mm. and one that packed out houses, uh, theatres, with 500 people every night of the week. And, mm. and these were corrugated iron shacks in a fledgling city, uh, Mombasa. And, you know, I think it, it really brings alive the cultural vibrancy of East African cities, even in this uh, in this period. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Edward Wilson Lee. He's a professor of literature at Cambridge and the author of Shakespeare in Swahili Land in Search of a Global Poet. Edward, is it safe to say, I mean, your focus is East Africa, but would this be, East Africa is an example of how all over the world Shakespeare is adapted to local cultures and the writing might be tweaked, so you're not going to be stabbed, you're going to be killed by a, a poisonous snake if that's what happens in your culture and you're going to be on a shipwreck, you'll be on a train wreck. But is that happening all over the planet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are extraordinary Shakespeare traditions in India, in Russia, Japan, China. Hmm. I think this East African story is extraordinary because uh, there are so many different periods in which Shakespeare is tweaked in different ways. He's used as this kind of um, this amulet to protect the explorers. He's used by the, the mm -hmm. missionaries to create a written culture of Swahili, a language that is now uh, spoken by 100 million people. 
he's translated into Swahili. He's, you know, he's performed by these Indian playwrights. And then, you know, in the late 20th century, he becomes a real flashpoint for talking about the extent to which these countries in the aftermath of colonialism want to be open to the culture of the people who had been colonial overlords. I'd like to get a little more into that. But first of all, uh, Edward, define Swahililand, uh, East Africa. Yeah, so Swahililand is not a terribly commonly used term, but it's one which helpfully captures uh, a set of countries, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, parts of the Congo, uh, Malawi, in which Swahili is either the main or, or one of the major languages. This also is the region that was governed as a kind of single entity by the British as a colony. So the reason why they all speak Swahili is because the British colonial officers and missionaries landed on the coast, which is where Swahili is spoken. Swahili is kind of very Arabic-influenced Bantu language. And as the colonial governments moved inland, uh, they were damned if they were going to speak, uh, hmm. learn more than one language. So they made everyone else learn Swahili as they moved inland. And so so Swahili is, just happens to be a convenient language for the colonial overlords to use so they don't have to learn all the different tribal languages. And because of the British imperialism, Swahili is much bigger in Africa today than it would have been otherwise. Precisely. So it, it is a legacy of colonialism. But on the other hand, it's also a legacy that's created a shared culture between all of these hmm. uh, an African culture within all of these countries in East Africa. Now, you talked about uh, the missionaries using Shakespeare's. What did 19th century missionaries and Shakespeare have in common when it comes to Swahili land? The main character in this story is a chap called Edward Steer, who was the third missionary bishop to Central Africa sent out from Britain. He arrives in Zanzibar in 1867, and he is a missionary, and it's his job to try and convert the locals to Christianity. But he sees it as central to this to create literacy. And mm. so he actually spends a lot of the time trying to understand local cultures, translating Swahili literature into English, and trying to provide things for local school children or, or people learning to read, to read in Swahili. So one of the first things printed in Swahili is a translation of Charles and Mary Lamb's tales from Shakespeare called Hadithi Zaki Ingereza, printed on this little hand press in the 1860s. And it goes on to be this foundational text for school children in Kenya for, mm. and Tanzania for almost a century after that. So missionaries wanted local people to be able to read the Bible and, uh, you know, promote their faith. And in order to do that, people had to be literate. And missionaries had to understand their culture, and their culture needed a better understanding of the missionaries' culture, and Shakespeare helped pave the way. Yeah, so the idea, I mean, if you're a, you're a missionary, uh, you believe that one God has created all people, and that means that all people must have some kind of shared language of beauty that they can communicate mm. in. And obviously Shakespeare was held up as this, this great genius who, in part because he wasn't terribly well educated, had access to uh, kind of universal notions of beauty that allowed him to speak this very pure language of beauty. And so the assumption was that wherever you went, if you translated Shakespeare into those languages, they would also be able to appreciate Hey, that's um, one more reason uh, he could be the global poet. He talked in yes, universal yeah. terms of beauty and love and humanity. That's one of the ways in, in which certainly when Shakespeare hmm. goes out to East Africa, you know, they're, they're thinking about his universalism. They're thinking about him uh, having this kind of global appeal. Hmm. The author of Shakespeare in Swahililand is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
Edward Wilson Lee was raised in Kenya by his British and American parents. They lived outside of Nairobi and worked as conservationists. Today, Edward teaches Shakespeare in Cambridge. He returned to East Africa to explore why the works of Shakespeare continue to be important in the region beyond the years of British colonialism. Edward's website is edwardwilsonlee.com. Edward, it was interesting in your book you talked about how British explorers and adventurers had this tradition of taking Shakespeare with them when they went deep into Africa. Uh, why would they do that? I would imagine they want to pack light and they're carrying a bunch of Shakespeare with them when they're trying to find the, the source of the Nile or whatever. Well, part of it is packing light, um, although to put this into context, Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton, who's one of the most famous explorers, says he could only take Shakespeare with him, but he seems to have um, found space in his luggage for enough port wine to drink a whole bottle of it every day. Yeah. So it's it's... It is a bit about priorities. I think, you know, there's also a symbolic ritual here. Everyone, I'm sure, like me, you know, who's very bookish, spends a lot of time thinking what they're going to take with them when they travel. Are you going to take something that you want to escape into that's going to tell you more about the local region or whatever? But these people were packing books to go on expeditions from which they had a realistic expectation they might never come back from. So in a way, it focused the mind uh, on what can you not live without? Hmm. Um, and Shakespeare serves as this icon, this idol of a European and, and more specifically British culture, which they feel like you know needs to be taken with them. So they're going deep into what they would consider the dark continent, and they wanted a link to the civilized world that they left behind. Indeed, yeah. And, and they tell these stories when they get back. Uh, as these sort of Shakespeare on safari stories, which demonstrate their love and allegiance of Shakespeare, they're reading him in this huh. in this uh, totally un, unthought of uh, environment. Although, <laughs> you know, amazing. Many of these I stories... can just picture you know some some British guy with a pith helmet, uh, 150 years ago, sitting in the middle of nowhere reading his Shakespeare. Just it's like you wrote in your book. It's kind of like they kept their Shakespeare separate from the place, as if it was uh, like an embassy back to the regular world or, or, or their homeland. Yeah, so I think it, it provides them the connection back to the culture that they feel um, very nervous at, at being detached from. Um, and, you know, in Joseph Conrad's great novel, The Heart of Darkness, uh, Colonel Kurtz, or Mr. Kurtz, um, Colonel Kurtz in the, in the Apocalypse Now film version, goes mad essentially because he doesn't have enough to read when he goes into the jungle. Mm. And he's stuck with his own thoughts and, uh, and, and is driven mad in part because of that. Uh, so it provides this connection back to, to culture. But it, there was also a, a slightly more, uh, less palatable part of it in that some of the stories they tell are about how the locals can't appreciate Shakespeare's genius. They're, they're terrified by books and writing. And this is part of the justification of colonialism, that if these, you know, if these barbarians can't appreciate the genius of Shakespeare, they need to be taken over and educated. And well, That uh, is uh, kind of the justification of this sort of colonial uh, cultural imperialism. We've got Shakespeare. Absolutely. You need our help. Now, it also yeah. you write also, Edward, about modern African history. Uh, for instance, uh, the first president of Tanzania actually translated Julius Caesar in his, in his spare time when he was working to get independence for his country. Yeah, this is an extraordinary story. So this is Julius Nyerere, uh, who's known as, as Mwalimu, or teacher, the first president of an independent Tanzania who spends his evenings as he's fighting for Tanzanian independence and then as he's writing the Tanzanian constitution, translating first um, Julius Caesar and then the Merchant of Venice into Swahili. And these are now cornerstones of East African literature and the, and the literary um, syllabus out there. 
And, you know, I think what's extraordinary here is that Nyerere, for various reasons, has insights into Shakespeare's plays. I think, you know, when you translate something, you have to think about the weight and the meaning of every word, um, and in part because of this, but also in part because he comes from a very, a very different part of the world. He has insights about uh, Shakespeare's plays, which actually most scholars nowadays would, would accept and agree with. But, you know, this is East Africa, not just taking Shakespeare from from Britain, but giving it back to Britain in a different guise, in a different uh, framework, which, you know, which reveals it in a new light. Edward Wilson Lee grew up just outside Nairobi. Today, he teaches English literature at Cambridge University, and he's the author of Shakespeare in Swahili Land. Edward describes how the works of Shakespeare played an important role in forming the new nation of South Sudan in an earlier appearance on Travel with Rick Steves. You can listen in our show archives for program number 512. That's from January 2018. You know, East Africa has gone through a a lot of um, tumult and tug-of-war, especially during the Cold War. I would imagine this um, respect for British culture and so on has some relation to the money invested in that part of the world to woo it away from the Soviet Union's uh, court. Is, Is that true? And then after the end of the Cold War... What was the impact of just, frankly, less interest in that part of the world because it wasn't uh, uh, in a struggle with the Soviet Union? Yeah, so this is a major part of the story in the late 20th century. I think on the one hand, African intellectuals were seeking to Africanize the education system, so to put African culture and African literature at the center of what students learned about. But part of this was displacing this colonial uh, legacy in, in the education system. But the government were very, the government, for instance, of Kenya were very uncomfortable with that because it signaled, they felt, to the wider world a desire not to engage uh, with the West and, by extension, with, with capitalism. So Daniel Arap Moy, the president of Kenya at the time in the early 1980s, takes this extraordinary step through executive action. You know, reinstating Romeo and Juliet, reinstating Shakespeare on the East African school syllabus after it's been taken off as a show to say, you know, we are open to world culture, but here meaning really Western culture. And I think, you know, he's saying we're open to the Western money. We don't want the, uh, you know, the soft power to stop because we don't want the, the money to stop. I would think in Swahili land, there is sort of a scar tissue of colonialism and they're sort of disinclined to embrace things that reek of colonialism. On the other hand, there's this global culture that any nation can aspire to. Could you kind of bring it to a a full circle here by just, your book is subtitled In Search of a Global Poet. Can you frame Shakespeare in East Africa as something other than British colonial heritage? I mean, can it be something grander than that and just a success for a local culture as, you know, symbolic of them breaking away from their colonial heritage? I think during the course of this story, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, Shakespeare is an imposition, and then he's something that is rejected by people, as you say, traumatized by the the colonial legacy. But at the end of it, there is a a re-engagement with Shakespeare, for instance, in the writing of the the great Kenyan novelist Ngugi Wa Thiongo, um, whose work is shot through with Shakespeare. And I think it shows that, you know, politics... And economics sometimes mean that a a book ends up in a particular place. But what readers do with it when it gets there 
is a more complex thing. And I think Shakespeare has, has been remade anew in East Africa, mm. as he has been in, in many other places. And it, his openness to a, to being taken and, and reshaped and, and made anew, I think, is, is part of that universalism. Well, Edward Wilson Lee, thanks for shining a light on, on the brilliance of, on the universality of, of Shakespeare and also the, the humanity of, of East Africa. Best wishes with your work. And again, thanks for sharing Shakespeare in Swahili land. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Present teacher, the Swahili Shakespeare. Make sure Motiako ni sharp ka daga, na hat ni soft ka tofu. Wapaizo ma thank you, whatever they taught you. Edward's next project reconstructs the ambitious library that was created by the son of Christopher Columbus. The catalog of shipwrecked books is due to be published in March. There's more on his website, edwardwilsonlee.com. Next up, it's nonstop to Reykjavik to hear about Iceland's exciting contemporary music scene. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Mina Soraya, we come from Suriname, and I cry with Rick Steves. I'm Soraya from Suriname, and that was Surinamese for I travel with Rick Steves. Mina Soraya, and I cry with Rick Steves. Thank you. Grantangi. Bon day. DJ Kevin Cole spent more than a decade exploring Iceland and focusing especially on its vibrant music scene. Each fall, Kevin and a team from KEXP Radio in Seattle head to Reykjavik to broadcast live from the Iceland Airwaves Music Festival. Cole has traveled to each corner of the island nation and has made many local friends. He's stopping by our studio now to share his passion for one of the hottest travel destinations anywhere these days and its music scene. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. Appreciate that. Of all places to take a radio crew to broadcast live, why would you choose Iceland, and why have you gone back for so many years in a row? Well, one reason is they have an incredible music scene. It's amazing. A little history on KEXP, we're a Seattle-based radio station with a global audience, and we're committed to finding and discovering great music no matter where it's being created. We had been going to music festivals in the United States, like South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, and CMJ in New York City. But uh, the first trip to Iceland as a station, I really wanted to make a point that uh, the KXP would travel to the farthest corners of the earth to find great music to share with our listeners worldwide. Really, you know, music is like travel in a way, too, right? And our belief is that... If we can harness the emotional power of music and bring people together, it helps create a more tolerant and understanding world as we get to have those experiences through music and get to understand each other through various different types of music. And uh, you come to realize that the world is a lot smaller place uh, than sometimes we think it is, even when it's far away. And there are different dimensions of cultures that you can use as your entree into a more intimate connection with that culture. It can be cuisine, it can be art, it can be music. Absolutely. And, and uh, music, certainly, it's almost a cliche, but it's international language. You can sit in a pub in Ireland or, or I suppose, in a small concert hall in, in Reykjavik and feel like you're celebrating the same thing with local people. Absolutely. And, and I think that's part of what drives KEXP and to your point, you don't even necessarily need to understand the language to be able to feel the emotional quality or what's being conveyed in the music. There is that magic spark. Sometimes I've been in, in traditional music uh, sessions in Scotland, and everybody's on the same wavelength. And I just, 
I walk out of there just marveling at what a magic... It's hard to explain it. These are the magic, the ways to make travel transformational, really. Yeah. Transformational is is such a a great word to describe uh, when you have those kind of experiences. And for me personally, that happens a lot with music when it it all comes together. And, And I'll tell you, one of the reasons we went to Iceland, or I went to Iceland for the first time, was... I wanted to go somewhere to experience the summer solstice. Could have done that in a whole bunch of different places. But there was a band called Sigaros, and they uh, had an album called Algetas Burian that was so magical when I first heard it. And I don't even know what it was. It, it's just so hard to put into words. I had never heard any music so beautiful that as soon as I sat and listened to that album, I was like, I want to go to the land this music where that was made. Came, from where that came. Yeah, I there's, want to try and understand it. There's something about that. If I listen to some music by Edvard Grieg, yes. I want to go to the fjord and look at the view where his cabin was when he was inspired to write that. Yeah, the music is sometimes so awe-inspiring. You want to be transported you want, to that. You, you want to go to the, to the place from where it blossomed. Yes, music can sometimes... It inspires <laughs> travel. Okay, so you're organizing this now, in a sense, with a passion for Iceland in particular. Yeah, so the first trip I went uh, was before we started broadcasting. And again, I don't know if you've had this experience, but it was 2005, and it was so remarkable, and it so far exceeded my expectations that I actually did not want to go back. <laughs> oh, I, you didn't want to go back because you thought you'd be... Ruining it. Ruining it, yeah. I, I, you know, it's so hard to replicate something oh, that's really... tell me about it. Yeah, Because yeah, I go back with the TV crew, and it's just, <laughs> come on, where's the magic? I was here last year. It was incredible. Do it again. Yeah, and sometimes it does. And so I did not want to go back, but I was so into it and, and kept talking about the music of Iceland on my radio show. I ended up hooking up with their trade commissioner and general counsel mm-hmm. here in North America, Lener Goodjohnson. And that uh, a series of events ended up culminating in us actually going to Iceland and broadcasting live. And I had to do a scouting location oh, yeah. trip before. Yeah. And I've been 14 or 15 times now, and every time has been a deep, rich experience for different reasons. And we would not keep going back and broadcasting live if there wasn't incredible music year over year over year, which is remarkable for a country of 325,000 people. But is is this music that comes out of Iceland, or is this a celebration of many cultures that go to be together in Iceland? Well, it's a bit of both now. Well, the music festival we broadcast from... It's called Iceland Airwaves, and it's a showcase for Icelandic and Nordic bands, new Mm -hmm. and emerging bands from the Nordic countries, along with a beautifully curated selection of international bands. So Mm -hmm. it's a gathering of people from all over the world, but uh, the focus is Icelandic. And I think what's happening now, though, musically, because of the Internet, is we're all able to hear music from all over the world. So musicians and creative Mm -hmm. people who are curious, become naturally inspired. That's that's a a boon for music culture internationally. And it's probably a a benefit of the Internet a lot of people don't, don't appreciate and don't take advantage of like they might. The land of fire and ice punches way above its weight as a source for innovative contemporary music. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Kevin Cole. He's the program director of Seattle's non-commercial KEXP radio, and a music host on weekday afternoons. Kevin's sharing why he travels to the Iceland Airwaves Festival every November in Reykjavik to hear what its many bands and musicians are up to each year. You'll find links to the festival and to Kevin's radio show at ricksteves.com radio. Sending out stars from 
Kevin, when we're talking about this listener's experience, this, this attendee's experience, this music appreciation experience, I don't think of Iceland as a place with great intimate venues. I mean, I've had magic experiences in pubs or in, in wonderful beer gardens and so on. But what is the venue like? Does that contribute to it in Iceland or is it just um, a concert hall? So Iceland Airwaves is a uh, multiple shows and events happening each night over four nights in various different venues and sometimes not even venues uh, because any space that could be a cool place to host a band becomes one. But okay. they've got things like uh, the Harpa Concert Hall, which is an amazing facility that is where oh, the that symphony... Oh, Hall, I've been there. That's a matter of pride for Reykjavik. It really is. The, it's the new concert hall. It's stunning, right? Every Scandinavian capital seems to really prioritize for a, a suitably creative and rooted in, in local values kind of uh, wonderful concert hall. Yeah. I think all the stone is, is volcanic, right. uh, black stone, right. definitely rooted in their, in their country. Iceland brags it's one of the most literate nations. Uh, I think they got more books published per capita than anywhere on earth. It has a vibrant music scene, as, as you're tuned into, with uh, all sorts of, of creative genres and lots of creative people. Have you thought about what makes Iceland uh, punch above its weight or that sort of phrase? Uh, because it's a tiny island and it's in darkness most of the year. <laughs> what, what is it about it that has so much creativity? Man, that's a, that is a great question, and music journalists have been trying to break the code on that one, right? Like, why does this uh, small country have such an incredible music scene, and why is it so creative? And and I think it's a whole bunch of different factors. In fact, I had uh, the president of Iceland on my show, mm -hmm. uh, Oliver Grimson, and we were talking about Iceland's assets. You, you know, you've got geothermal energy and the, the knowledge around that. You've got the fishing industry. You've right. got data mining. But he said that the most valuable asset of Iceland is the creativity of the people. And he sort of tied that into, again, the legacy or the lineage of the, the sagas and how storytelling had to be a way that the history was told you know, dating back a thousand years, and that sort of everyone was a storyteller. And he said that uh, art and culture in Iceland was really a democracy of culture in that everyone was encouraged to participate. And at some points, everybody had to by telling the stories, right? He related this to music in saying that, you know, everybody can create music. And if you have something valuable to contribute, it will be embraced and by valuable to contribute, he meant something new and different. Right. And he mixed that in with the saga heritage. Yes. When people had to do things in an oral tradition. Yes. And uh, music is the horse that the poetry rides on. Yes. And, and he sort of equated that era to this DIY, do-it-yourself culture. Right. Uh, that, that they have that really reinforces just people participating and, again, uh, being creative. So you can celebrate this dimension of Iceland any time of year, but the festival you're talking about is every year in early November, right? Yes. It's called Iceland Airwaves. Iceland Airwaves, and it's owned by uh, Icelandic Air. Yeah, so... So, so that's sort of like there's probably a, a, an airline deal to get there for this. Yeah, so, so the airline actually started the festival over a decade ago 
trying to solve a problem of how do we get people to Iceland when it's dark and winter? Right. You, you I, I would think that was an initiative <laughs> to get people there outside of the peak time because Iceland is overwhelmed in the summer, but all year long it has certain charms. So. Exactly. So, the, so they were like, how do we get people here? Well, what do we have? We've got great music. Let's create a music festival. The first year it was actually in an airport hangar, the festival right. itself, right, oh, okay. adjacent to the airport. What a great story. Now, over all these years, Kevin, what particular band or experience would, would you think is like a great example of a wonderful gift that this has given? you man there's so many um one we record videos of all these performances and they're up on our youtube channel and it's remarkable how they've connected with people we have over 50 million views of the videos that we've assembled wow and i feel comfortable saying we've assembled the largest archive of contemporary icelandic music the station in seattle i'd like to play one right here though what what is a, a good example that we could just give our, our listeners so of monsters and men were a band that we recorded in their uh living room when they only had three songs they had just won this icelandic battle the bands and they were brand new they let us into their home we filmed them in this really intimate environment just stripped down acoustic and obviously the songs were great, right? Yeah. So we were fortunate to be there to capture this moment. We put it online. It went viral. Ah. And because of that video, they got signed to a major label record deal in the United States. And this is a, basically a little garage band from Reykjavik. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, so our next song uh, was our first single from our album, and it's called Little Talks. So hold my hand, I'll walk with you, my dear The stars creep as you sleep, it's keeping me awake It's the house telling you to close your eyes And some days I can even trust myself Of Monsters and Men Kevin Cole, that was fun. It makes me want to go to Iceland in November, believe it or not. Cool, and, uh, I'll see you there. <laughs> and thanks for uh, sharing this, this wonderful dimension of travel that a lot of us might not appreciate. Well, thank you so much for your interest. Kevin Station will be broadcasting live from the Iceland Airwaves Festival this November 7th to the 10th. It's at kexp.org. A few years ago, one of our show's producers traveled to Reykjavik to see what the nightlife scene was really like there during the festival. Isaac Kaplan-Wolner reports. One thing I learned quickly. If you go out on the town in Reykjavik, be prepared for a very long night. Yeah, I like to party late and start late. It's stormy in winter, and I'm finding it hard to get used to the lack of daylight here in the far north. But locals I spoke to said they make full use of those long nights. In the summer we drink because we're happy, in the winter we drink because we're sad, so it's like pretty similar, I guess. But Icelanders, they drink to like really like celebrate life and really get into it. So like we're all friends when we're drunk. Typically, young people in Reykjavik will gather at a friend's house on a Friday or Saturday to hang out and drink until midnight or later. Alcohol is so expensive here, so that people get real liquored up at home, and then they, they go out and they maintain with like a drink or two, right? But they hit the town drunk. At least the young people do. And then that sort of shapes the whole experience. At a time when most people would consider going to bed, their night is just beginning. It's time to finally hit the streets, or street in this case. Leugeveger is the center of it all in Reykjavik. I live on Leover, which is like the, the main street, the Champs Elysees of Reykjavik. 
All the action is centralized along this one easily walkable strip. Shops, restaurants, bars, and clubs line the cobbled street flanked by low, colorful buildings. There are no open container laws in Reykjavik. Most places don't have a cover charge. You're free to move about and find your perfect scene. So it's like if you're bored of the place that you're in, you can just like walk two minutes and you're at another one. Despite a prevalent drinking culture, the city seems clean and safe. I feel welcomed wherever I wander. Of course, I'm here during Iceland Airwaves. This now massive international music festival draws large crowds from Europe and the United States each November. The city seems especially open this week. But it is a small town, just 120,000 residents, which means locals are eager to meet outsiders. Don't think you need to like camouflage yourself. Just be from wherever you're at, and that's probably interesting to us because, you know, we see a bunch of Icelanders, so we want to see something new anyway. And while young people in Reykjavik typically party until 5 or 6 a.m. on the weekends, they're very studious and hardworking during the week. There's something of a split personality on display a bipolar nature born, perhaps, of living so close to the North Pole. Until quite recently, there was no culture of casual drinking. The after-work beer so common in the U.S. is practically unheard of here. You can be, like, super drunk on a Friday night or Saturday night, and people go, oh, you know, whatever, like... But if you have had, like, two beer, three beer on a Tuesday night? What? What's going on here? Do you have troubles? What's, what's up? Still, I found plenty to do, even on a weeknight. There are great new restaurants opening, like the hip, hidden pizza place with no name or sign that I stumbled upon. Also, smaller weekly music gigs, galleries, and even the infamous Phallus Museum. But it's music in particular that drew me here. It would be a shame to visit Reykjavik without experiencing some local talent. Iceland boasts an astonishing number and variety of bands. Hundreds of them are playing both official and unofficial shows for Iceland Airwaves. Some bands even play it ten times and they just get exhausted after. It's almost midnight on Saturday night. Time to bundle up and head out on Loyavegar to catch some concerts. Though early by local standards, the streets are full of revelers. Yet by the next morning, cleaning crews will have erased all evidence of debauchery. By about three in the morning, I've taken in all the music and beer I can handle. As I walk home, I stop at one of several roadside stands to get the traditional late-night snack of pilsur. It sounds exotic, but it's actually a hot dog topped with remoulade, sweet hot mustard, fried and raw onions. I'm told it's a delicious way to ward off the cold and soak up some alcohol. Back in my Airbnb, just off the heart of Loyavegar, I climb up on the roof with a small bottle of Brennevin. This local caraway schnapps takes some getting used to, but it does help to fight off that biting wind. With a party continuing on the streets below and several slumbering construction cranes as my companions, I look up. A miraculously clear sky spreads overhead. Suddenly, soft green sheets of light descend to dance and twirl in front of my tired eyes. I'm grinning from ear to ear as I clench my teeth to stop them from chattering. Aurora Borealis appears like a blessing to cap off an incredible night in Reykjavik. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. 
at Rick Steeds Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the BBC in London for their help this week. Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app. It's at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks for Scandinavia, Rick's new Iceland guidebook, and a cruise ship guide to the ports of Northern Europe. To learn more, shop online in the travel store at ricksteves.com.